Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. Before we get going, I thought you might like to know that after almost four years, author events are back at Shakespeare and Company and in a reimagined event space on our first floor. We have such an exciting lineup in place for you in the coming months. There's Holly McNish and Michael Peterson in early February. Then in March, there's Danny Kane, author of How to Protect Bookstores and Why, Rachel Kushner giving us an exclusive preview of her wild new novel, Creation Lake, and Perlitzer Prize winner Viet Tan Nguyen discussing his memoir, A Man of Two Faces. Beyond that, into the spring, we have a blockbusting book-to-screen event with Otessa Moshfeg and Luke Goebel, as well as conversations with Sheila Hetty, Samantha Schweblin, Hari Kanzru and Rachel Kusk. As always, readings are free, unticketed and open to everyone, so do arrive early to secure your seat. Also make sure you keep an eye on our website, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter to be the first to hear about our upcoming events. And if you can't be at the bookshop in person, remember that you can listen in to past events here on the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. We're so happy to be bringing writers and readers together again and look forward to seeing you at the bookshop soon. Now, sit back and enjoy the interview, whichever one you're listening to. Today, we're discussing The Possessed, the great almost lost novel by Witold Gombrowicz, arguably Poland's greatest modernist writer. The Possessed is a gothic-infused romp set in the Roaring Twenties, centred around an uncanny love story between Maya, an upper-class tennis player, and her coach, Leszczuk, but also featuring a haunted castle, lost treasure, and a mad prince, as every good gothic novel should. It has been published by Fitzcarraldo in a lively and highly readable translation by Antonia Lloyd-Jones, and with a sharp-witted and insightful introduction by Adam Thurwell, both of whom join me to discuss it today. Antonia Lloyd-Jones has translated works by many of Poland's leading contemporary novelists and reportage authors, as well as crime fiction, poetry and children's books. Her translation of Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead by 2018 Nobel Prize in Literature laureate Olga Tokarczuk was shortlisted for the 2019 International Booker Prize. Adam Thurwell is the author of four novels. His work has been translated into 30 languages, while his awards include a Somerset Maugham Award and the E.M. Forster Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. In 2018, he was made a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. You can hear him talk about his latest novel, The Vertiginous, The Future Future, by scrolling back a few episodes in our podcast feed. Antonia, Adam, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you very much. Um, so to begin, um, maybe Adam, we could turn to you to set up a little bit um, the the story of the novel in a way, because I said in the introduction that it was an almost lost novel by uh, Gombrowicz. So could you just let our listeners know a little bit about um, how the novel was almost lost and then how it came to uh, to be part of his earth? Um, so, yeah, so, so Gombrowicz, Gombrowicz was, um, uh, you know, one of the great Central European novelists of the 20th century, um, began publishing, um, I think it was in 1933, where he published a, a book of um, short stories called Memoirs from the Time of Immaturity. And he became very swiftly one of the leading figures in the Polish avant-garde scene, in the, in the modernist scene, um, and was often linked, for instance, with other writers like, like Bruno Schultz, with whom he had mm-hmm. a sort of a frenemy kind of relationship as well as I can make out. Um, and so later on, he then, he, he wrote a play. He wrote what's probably considered by many people, his kind of novelistic masterpiece, Ferdi Derker. Mm-hmm. I pronounced that correctly, Antonio. And um, he also wrote, but essentially under a pseudonym, this novel called The Possessed. And so the, the idea is that clearly he serialized it in, in a newspaper um, under this pseudonym, and for a long time, it was it was considered this was something he'd written for money, and that he mm. acknowledged ownership of this novel, as it were, um, until very close to his death, where he um, did a, a wonderful book length interview um, called Testament, um, where among the kind of works that were then compiled to the kind of bibliography that was then compiled to accompany that was, I think, the first time that he kind of inclu- allowed that to be included in a list of his works. And so there was a further kind of problem, I think, was that its publication coincided or kind of jarred against the um, the beginning of the Second World War. And so mm-hmm. the last, I think, is it two chapters, um, were, were considered completely lost. Um, and then it was only when they were rediscovered that then a full 
text could be produced, which I think, which I mean, it was only happened long after his death. Um, so one of the excitements of this is um, not only is it translated by Antonia very brilliantly, but it's the first time that the full text, I think, is available to us. Um, and am I right in thinking the first time I saw it described as the first direct translation into English? Previous translations, is that right, Antonia? Came is it via the French? It was done via French, but as mm. Adam said, it was incomplete. Mm-hmm. So it was only published fully in Polish um, in 1990, mm-hmm. having appeared in I think 1974 or five or something after his death. He died in 1969. Um, but yes, this is the first time it's been translated directly from Polish in its complete form. Mm-hmm. And uh, do we have any sense, either, perhaps either if you know, um, about why he disowned it and then why he later claimed it? Because was it because he, you know, he he was he you know he wrote it for money, he serialized it, and he wasn't particularly proud of it? But or was could it have been because he strikes me as an incredibly mischievous? man the sort of incredibly mischievous writer because could this have been part of his um sort of yes place playfulness i mean my certain my sense i'm not a gombrovich scholar so i have no idea the exact reasons i've always assumed it was because it's like a pulp it's like kind of it's a pulp kind of novel in many ways however much it also has his extraordinary intelligence operating inside it so I guess one thought I'd always had was that therefore it was something that was done for money. But I think there's also the facts of his biography which come in. So um, I said that uh, the Second World War intervenes to kind of cut off publication. Um, It also completely truncated his kind of biography because what happened was that completely by chance, before the war was declared, he had gone on a maiden liner cruise to Argentina. to basically cover this, I think, as a journalist. And it was only when he was in Buenos Aires that then war was formally declared, Poland was invaded, and he had the choice of either going back to Nazi-occupied Poland or staying where he was. And so he obviously decided to stay, um, but this then became basically a permanent exile because he then Mm -hmm. couldn't go back. Um, And so he spent nearly 20 years or more than 20 years in Buenos Aires. So I'm, I've always also assumed that this work that basically j- literally had to cease publication as he left, it therefore kind of just disappeared almost from the way he thought about his oeuvre, that I think that he very much clearly thought that there was the pre-war work, mm. uh, which culminated in Ferdi Durka, and then there was the work that he, he made in Buenos, in Buenos Aires, and then when he finally went back to, to Europe, he came back to France, to Vence in the south of France. And via Berlin. Via Berlin, you're right. And um, so in one sense, it's as if it just got kind of lost as well. You know, that I don't know, had he stayed in Poland, would it have become a more open part of his work? Um, mm. I think that's very possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Adam, you described it as a, a pulp novel. Um, Antonia, might you be able to, to set up the, the book for us? Tell us a little bit about um, about the plot. Of- OK, well, of course, the important thing about the book is that it's extremely funny mm. and fairly silly and bizarre. <laughs> and you can read it on various levels. I mean, I do think of it as a bit of a tonic, particularly as a translator of Polish literature, which is generally somewhat on the depressing side. Um, it does have a serious side to it in that it is a critique of society that's very typical of Gombrowicz and it has many of the features that are typical of his work but in this strange pastiche form so um, the story starts on a train which is travelling to a remote part of eastern Poland and carrying some of the main characters who instantly set up the comic tone of the rest of the book. So we have Leszczuk, you mentioned, who starts life called Valchak, but his name changes mm-hmm. <laughs> for reasons which we can explain later um, after chapter two. He's a working class tennis coach. And also on the train is Maya Ochołowska, who is the spoilt young aristocrat whom Valchak Leszczuk is to coach to improve her tennis. And there is also Henrik Holowitzki, who is Maya's ambitious fiancé, 
Holovitsky's employer, who is called Prince Holshansky, who's a mad old prince, as you said, every Gothic novel must have one. <laughs> and <clears throat> also on the train are some summer visitors who are going to be lodging at Maya's family manor house because her widowed mother is almost bankrupt and has been forced to take in paying guests. Um, and among these guests, there's Professor Skolinski, and he's an art historian, and he has a secret plan to get inside the prince's creepy, crumbling castle because he wants to see if there are art treasures concealed in there. And Holovitsky, the ambitious secretary of the prince, suspects the same thing. So meanwhile, he's scheming to make sure the prince trusts him alone and leaves him his fortune. So we immediately have intrigue and mystery. Mm -hmm. And um, then Holovitsky decides to turn the professor's interest to his own advantage. And he invites him into the castle to value the works of art in there. But he deliberately makes sure that the professor has to sleep in an old kitchen that is supposedly haunted <laughs> and after a single night alone in there previous occupants have lost their wits entirely um, but although he has a scare the professor outwits Holovitsky and he gains the trust of the bewildered mad prince and in the process he finds out that the prince has a big secret that he determines to discover um, meanwhile Maya and Leschuk become embroiled in a strange love-hate relationship, which is based partly on all sorts of peculiar similarities that they have and that no one can fail to notice. Um, and Maya plays Leschuk off against her fiancé, Holovitsky, while struggling with her feelings for both of them. And eventually, when matters come to a very dramatic head, both she and Leschuk separately escape to Warsaw, <clears throat> where they get involved in new adventures. Maya as the escort to a miserly millionaire, and Leschuk in an effort to become a tennis champion, though Maya effectively ruins his chances. Um, so <clears throat> eventually they'll both be drawn back to the haunted castle for the exciting denouement. I'm not going to spoil <laughs> the plot. And the, the truth about the prince's past. And along the way, the readers will be taken to expensive hotels, swanky nightclubs, charity balls, tennis tournaments, and even seances, there will be quite literally murder and mayhem. And the, as readers, we'll meet all sorts of undesirable characters who show various degrees of smugness and artificiality, including the snooty vacationers at the manor house, a Russian woman who provides beautiful young women with work as escorts for rich businessmen, um, a malevolent marquise whose millionaire uncle enjoys humiliating her, some snobbish young men, and a rather amusing petty con man. And then the more attractive, authentic characters include a batty old butler at the castle, <laughs> a sweet young innocent waitress, a decent tennis champ, a young intellectual, a celebrated medium, and a farmhand. And these contrasts between the various people fuel Gombrowicz's typical humorous indictment of class-conscious pre-war Polish society. He had this obsession with authenticity and artificiality, mm. which constantly comes up in his work. And although this book is his bastard child that he disowned, there are very strong themes typical of his work in it, particularly that one. You, there's so many things I'd like to pick up on from the, um, the, the, the setup you gave us of the novel. Um, you mentioned that almost despite himself, despite you know this being a book that he would 
his own or writing he didn't publish under his name. It sort of it contains a lot of elements of um, Gombrowicz's work, and it put me in mind of a little bit of um, of when Melville was writing Moby Dick, and uh, the, the idea that he he actually set out to write a um, a, a whaling adventure that would make him some money, and then ended up a few years later with um, with this <laughs> this is sort of a monumental um, work of literature. Um, I wonder is for example, Adam, in your reading of The Possessed, do you think that sort of, do you read it as uh, sort of a sincere attempt to write in a genre, to make money, and then it just gets kind of, you know, despite himself, he ends up writing something more? Or do you read it as um, as a sort of a deliberate pastiche or a, or a parody of that particular genre, or perhaps both? Yeah, I think it's very difficult to differentiate kind of the two, and especially with Gombrowicz, who is such a funny writer and who's even the, as it were, so-called more serious novels are very bizarre in many ways and and have this same, it's not just a sense of humour, but a sense of the utterly absurd and the grotesque and the just downright weird. Um, so I think for that reason, especially, like if you compare it to sort of the setup of Ferdi Durka, for instance, which is, you know, his most famous book, where kind of begins with basically the narrator who is essentially Gombrowicz, who has just published a book of short stories called Memoirs from a Time of Immaturity, like Gombrowicz had done, and is lamenting the critics, basically, is lamenting the fact that he's had to read all these reviews about him, you know, and how horrible it is to have this image of oneself sort of um, being germinating in, in other people's words, in other people's images. And he's just resolves to kind of realize that in the end, all that matters is to find the pure thing that is not imitative, that is not mm. um, sort of controlled by the way other people see you. He's going to finally write this pure work of self-expression, at which point a, a school professor turns up and drags him back to school where he's forced to essentially go back to school. <laughs> um, so it's this utterly mad work. And then also I think formally it's quite interesting because he then in introduces two short stories into the book, into the fabric of this novel, which have absolutely nothing to do for on any plot level with the, the, the story you're reading. And so Gombrowicz, you see, therefore constantly like to jar things together mm. uh, to play with different levels. So I think with Possessed, um, I think probably it clearly was meant as a, whatever you want to call it, a pot boiler. It was like the equivalent of him suddenly deciding to, you know, write a screenplay for money, as it were. And I guess I think what happens often with a with a true writer, as it were, is that he can't not be Gombrowicz. And so mm -hmm. even when and I think there are ways in which this is definitely very pulpily written. You know, there's no doubt there are things that I'm sure Gombrowicz, the literary modernist, would not, you know, like I love the opening where basically the entire plot is set up through people finding letters and reading them to themselves or overhearing <laughs> in the most stagey way, conversations they're never meant to hear. So it's absolutely written like a B-movie or something, you know. It, it felt very Agatha Christie, that early yeah. scene on the train. Actually. I mean, it's like Agatha Christie, even if she was kind of asleep, you know. I mean, absolutely, <laughs> I mean, and so in that sense, it completely kind of boasts of its B-movie status, as it were, it's, its kind of pulp novel status. Um, but then, as Antonio was saying, like, kind of definitely some of these themes come through. And I'd say for me, I think, it's exactly, it's this idea of the artificial, which I think we'll mm -hmm. need to talk about more. Mm -hmm. And also this obsession, which I think is almost linked for him with the double, with the idea that mm -hmm. in a relationship, so like the core of this novel is the sort of weird, erotic disgust and attraction that this central couple have for each other, who everyone agrees look identical, um, that they are in many ways the same person is the idea. And one of the things I think Gombrowicz was really fascinated by was the way in which essentially everyone is influencing everyone else all the time. That mm -hmm. the moment you enter into a conversation, your identity is being stolen, basically, that it's being deformed. Um, and that kind of leakage between people was clearly something I think that he was one of the first people to really find a way of describing at the same time as it was clearly something that he found deeply disturbing. And so a huge amount of his writing, especially as he got older, he went into this large project of self-definition in his journal. And that, for me, is, is, is part of the same overall concern, that 
-hmm. it's this desperate wish to find the unique even while basically believing that that's impossible and i think that these themes yeah so they come out but it's as if he finds that the pot boiler the kind of old-fashioned the the doubling and the kind of secret and actually fits his his the same kind of um themes that he'd been exploring in in apparently more serious work Mm -hmm. antonia does that pose a challenge for the translator when we do have questions of sort of sincerity and questions of tone and questions of sort of I guess register um, and writing in genre you know how in a sense how does one as a translator capture all of that while also sort of transmuting it to another language absolutely I think I've 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 been I've got the easy um, uh, ticket or whatever the word is here because Compared with translating other books of his, I think this one is probably a lot more straightforward. Mm. But what was interesting as a translator is that a huge amount of this comes through in the way the different characters speak. The dialogue is essential. And it's right at the start. The whole book starts with one of the pompous characters, Shimchik telling the unpompous character Leschuk off for leaning out of the train window. And Leschuk comes back to him with a very sort of casual, un, an authentic as opposed to an artificial answer. So if I just read you those, that tiny exchange, which is two lines at the beginning, um, it starts with Shimchik saying... Can't you see there's a sign here that says, do not lean out? Do official orders mean nothing to you? Mm. So immediately there's a sort of pompous tone and there's form and there's these are the rules, you must obey them. And then it goes on. This remark was addressed to the young man leaning out of the window by a faded elderly man in Pince-Nez. It happened on a train somewhere beyond Lublin. The young man drew his head inside and turned around. Do you know what the next stop is? He asked. So the response, do you know where the next stop is? Is just natural. It comes across to the pompous man as flippant and rude. Mm -hmm. But immediately you've got this contrast between the characters set up in the way people speak. And when I was translating it, I was terribly conscious of the voice the whole time with each character. Um, but it's beautifully done. So, I mean, Gombrowicz helps you all the way and you can see exactly what he's doing. Some of them, it was quite tricky. For instance, the old butler character um, who speaks in slightly off-standard Polish. And I was a bit worried by that. But then I spoke to the Swedish translator, who's a friend of mine, Stefan Ingvarsson, and he said um, that this butler is like an English butler. And that was a really good clue. It was exactly the right thing to say, because then I could give him a tone that fitted. And I actually also found with this particular book, and perhaps this is something to do with Gothic literature, as we call it, and the kind of uh, genre that Gombrowicz was using for for his own purposes here, that it's rather a British genre. So as a British translator, I had the advantage of having grown up reading things like Buchan and Robert Louis Stevenson and all these adventure books that that um, are really the origins of the style that he's using. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think I had something taken in with my mother's milk here for the uh-huh. <laughs> I had an advantage, but I didn't realise that till I was well into it. Yeah, Antonio, I've got a question for you, because certainly when I was reading it, I was thinking, I was slightly worried by how British the references were. That <laughs> I was thinking, you know, this reminds me of Walpole's The Castle of Otranto or Gothic. <laughs> um, Which I've never read. <laughs> um, but it's, I think you're right that the Gothic in many ways began, or maybe always has been, a sort of British tradition in some ways. You know, I'm thinking of Arto translated, you know, Matthew Lewis's The Monk, or kind of like the Gothic enters Europe often via Britain. So I was just asking, but is there actually a, a completely different Polish tradition of the Gothic that I'm unaware of? Or, um, well, um, what he often, he did often satirize earlier Polish writing. Mm. 
but it's not so much a gothic tradition but if you um i suppose transatlantic is the one where it's most obvious yeah. a lot of polish nationalism and patriotic identity during the partitions when poland really needed to create a strong cultural tradition in order to remain in existence as a country when it had been wiped off the map. There was a great deal of harking back to what they called the Sarmatian tradition of the 18th century um, and the era of uh, King Jan Sobieski when Polish noblemen would dress up in these elaborate costumes and have strange sort of Roman haircuts and all sorts of of peculiar cultural traditions. And there was a fashion then for writing a sort of a memoir. And a lot of the later culture in the fight for independence is based on this tradition as a way of building up a national spirit. And Gombrowicz enormously um, took the mickey out of all of that. And he, he, he provoked this enormously important cultural basis in Polish by not exactly aping but satirizing that style particularly in Transatlantic which is the book he wrote in Argentina as a sort of Mm. memoir of what it was like to be in exile Um, but um, I'm not sure I'm afraid to say I'm ignorant of the Polish gothic tradition <laughs> but um i think it is more of a european tradition in that you know and he was a european author he wasn't mm-hmm. yeah. I'm, I'm curious about these kind of um these kind of connections as well i think often of a, an irish friend of mine who's lived in poland for a few years and he said that he was expecting when he went there to find a culture sort of fu- not fundamentally sort of necessarily different but like quite far removed from the, the one he'd left behind and was quite struck for him by the similarities between the Irish and the Polish so for him he said you know he, he put it down to the Catholicism kind of a history of kind of oppression exactly. and, um, and sort of being people trying to wipe them off off the map and I'm wondering do, do, do sort of references and comparisons like that help the translator in their work. As oh, well. absolutely. I, I mean, <laughs> you've just reminded me of something funny. Uh, the first time that, well, I, I my first author was called Pavel Hüller. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry to say tomorrow I'm flying to his funeral in Gdansk. He's just died at the age of 66. Mm-hmm. And you've reminded me how Pavel and I went on a trip to Ireland many, many years ago. This is in 1990, I think, or 91. And how... I kept very quiet about where I was from, and but he was very welcome, and mm. I, he loved it in Ireland. He felt very much at <laughs> home, and he was very fascinated by Irish literature and the culture. Well, so am I, but he felt very much at home there. And we were in a cab, and I was just keeping my mouth shut because I didn't. I thought, you know, being British slash English might not go down very well. And this cab driver was having a great chat with Pavel, saying. Um, oh yes of course well, we've got lots in common we Irish and, and you Poles because we're oppressed by the neighbouring empire um, who tried to colonise us and um, and we're Catholics mm. um, and then oh gosh we went to um, the Martello Tower that's at the beginning of Ulysses which mm. you know all about Adam so, <laughs> um, but Mulligan's Tower which was, of course, where Gogarty had Gogarty had the um, retreat for writers, and Joyce had gone and lived there. And we went to this place, and it's right out in Dunleary on the mm. coast. And we looked around this museum, and then we were walking up and down the rocks there by the sea. And there was a funny little hut, and there were these, let us say, carousing, to say it politely, um, locals in there very merry and Pavel was immediately drawn to this company and there was a very funny scene I witnessed saying well where are you from then where are you from and he's, he's saying I am from Poland this English is very primitive and quite comical <laughs> I think he would agree he would agree with me and then suddenly this 
out of this hut comes up the pole, up the pole. <laughs> Come and join us. And I had, I thought, oh my God, if I let him go in there, I will never get him out of there. <laughs> There's a, a very definite, strong link. And I mean, personally, um, I've, I've seen this again and again. I have been in the company of Seamus Heaney and his mm. friends and publisher and translator in Poland and uh, he was hugely he and his wife Mari were hugely at home there and mm. ditto I've seen calm to be speaking in Poland and and it just being the best atmosphere imaginable <laughs> ditto Sebastian Barry uh, <laughs> there's a there's a strong literary correlation mm. It's really fascinating. It's um, yeah, because you might, I guess, un- unless you've experienced it, it, might not be something that you would automatically assume. But it uh, it makes a lot of sense as well. <laughs> um, just just to return to this idea of the the gothic as well, because um, it is obviously very clearly a gothic novel, but it's also very much a novel of the the sort of the modernist era, of the nineteen twenties. I think Adam, in your um, in your introduction, you use the you use the expression the full typewriter wildness of Central Europe, um, and uh, Antonia, you also mentioned you know there are there are seances, there are you know there's there's obviously fast trades, fast cars, there's dance halls, there's kind of the popularity of tennis. There's really this kind of the sort of the nineteen twenties sort of vibe to the mm-hmm. the book as well. And I'm just curious, Adam, did you do you think that sort of is something that sort of that sits al- alongside the gothic. There's sort of two traditions at work here. There's certainly, I guess, the kind of the change of tone when it goes from the castle to to Warsaw. Are they both kind of equally important in understanding and reading this novel? Yeah, it's true. It's, it's a, in many ways, it's a highly contemporary novel um, while using this gothic form. And I guess that's one actual reason, I think, for its charm is that mm. it's not set in an imaginary 18th century um, castle, you know, that it, takes place in this weird hybrid of um of the of the old fashioned and the and the highly up to the up to the minute and i think that i don't know if he's the first but it's something you know i mean i think it was clearly something that a lot of other modernist writers were actually interested in in a, in a far more serious vein i mean kafka is the obvious example of where the supernatural operates within a recognizable kind of contemporary setting and i think with this novel, yeah, it's almost as if he enjoyed maximizing that contrast. So on the one hand, you have these apparently uh, old-fashioned things of, you know, castles and aristocrats in castles and art collections and secrets. And then you have these very, very, you know, it's very concerned with money, this book, mm-hmm. um, and the getting of money and kind of, and its relationship to class. And so, yeah, I think... It, it somehow manages to think that the Gothic might be the ideal form uh, to explore almost contemporary concerns that I think some modernist writers felt a little snobbish almost about including in their work. So I think that there was kind of one thing that is very interesting, I think, about the modernist novel is how much it was almost purifying. Like it was an abstraction of stuff that, so that compared to like the 19th century novel of Balzac or whoever, who Gombrowicz hated. Um, <laughs> Uh, the the sort of your 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 standard um, platonic form of the modernist novel would have kind of got rid of some of that detail, but here he multiplies it, uh, and it's actually yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, it it much more reminds me almost of much more recent kind of it, like it's I don't know like analogies that spring to mind seem to be much closer to something like Twin Peaks, you know, mm. the idea of the weird and uncanny operating within a completely kind of, you know, normal, apparently normal world. Um, and I think it all centers on this towel. I think the towel that is this bridge between, as it were, worlds, it just takes, I think, absolute genius. It's like the kind of genius that Hitchcock has to realize that a shower could be terrifying. Right. I think to realize that a towel at a window could be the symbol of the uncanny is just wonderful. And the way he describes it is so frightening in it. Mm-hmm. utter mundanity and like and you can't understand why it's so scary and then gradually you do and you think absolutely i can completely kind of see that an old dirty towel in an old room would freak anybody out mm-hmm. yeah so i think the towel is kind of the perfect kind of aspect of that of where these two this very ordinary modern world um is collided 
with a very sort of almost supernatural world, you know. As I mentioned, <clears throat> Professor Skolinski gets inside the castle, but he is made to spend the night in the supposedly haunted kitchen. So in this scene, he goes there intending to rest, but you'll hear what happens to him. <clears throat> the professor was so tired that not even the acute silence of the castle could get through to him. He went over to the table and turned up the lamp, then sat down on the bed again and started to undo his shoelaces. Suddenly, he stopped what he was doing. There was something going on in the room. He didn't know what, but he was sure there was something going on in here. It was a strange feeling. He looked around and saw nothing, just white walls, a stone floor, a kitchen stove with a large hood, and yet there was something. The something wasn't a threat from the outside, but from the inside, the something was in the room. Suddenly, the professor's throat was gripped by a vague but acute sensation of atrocity, as if a detestable animal were lurking close by but the kitchen was almost entirely empty, except for a heap of old papers in the corner. Nonetheless, he had the distinct impression there was something going on and that this something was working away non-stop. He picked up one of the newspapers that had been left on the floor. It was a back issue of the Warsaw Courier, dated 1923. There were two other papers with the same date. He was kneeling on the floor examining the newspapers when all at once he was seized by the fear that the something might be lurking behind him. He went straight back to the bed, but his terror grew to such an extent that now nothing could possibly induce him to move from this position. He was afraid of every movement. Sweat broke out on his forehead. These symptoms of fear shocked him even more because they had no rational foundation. What he feared most of all was being afraid. Why do I feel afraid? He thought blankly. His eyes scoured the entire room, examining every single object. The papers in the corner puzzled him. A pile of old account books and some other scraps. It was the only spot in the kitchen that he couldn't see properly, and so it attracted him. Perhaps the something was hiding under those papers. He didn't dare approach, but visually scanned it all the more thoroughly. Protruding from under the stiff bookkeeping covers, he spotted the corner of a notebook, an ordinary school exercise book with squared paper filled with writing in pencil. The professor was long-sighted, so he had no problem making out a few words to wit, so far nothing has happened. The rest was shielded by the books. Except in the line below, he could decipher 12.45, still nothing. Instantly, he felt sure that this was relevant to his situation. In a few decisive paces, he went up to the corner, pulled out the exercise book and immediately returned to the bed. At the top of the exercise book, written in large letters, was the word minutes. And further on, the minutes of my sojourn in the old kitchen at Miss Watch Castle on the 14th of December 1923 by Kazimierz Rudzianski. I, Kazimierz Rudzianski, apprentice at Promcha Manor Farm on the Miss Watch estate, on learning that the old kitchen is said to be haunted, which I do not believe, have resolved to investigate and to explain the question of supposed ghosts. I am recording my impress impressions for two reasons. First, as a lasting reminder, and second, to have something to occupy me, because I cannot sleep, the ghosts have not appeared, and I have finished reading the newspapers. It is twenty past twelve, and thus the hour for ghosts has already come, but so far nothing has happened. Rajansky's minutes went on in the same slightly humorous tone for a few pages. The professor feverishly read his way into the text, hungry to know if this person from 15 years ago had experienced the same groundless anxiety. 
Here it was. After some lengthy reasoning to justify his theory that supernatural phenomena do not exist at all, came the following passage. Besides, I would be lying if I claimed not to be surrendering entirely to the atmosphere. Indeed, I am still waiting for something, and although I am trying hard to concentrate fully on writing, at the back of my brain, I am continuously geared towards the supposed ghosts. As well as the lamp, I have lit two candles, each in a different spot, so nobody will be able to deprive me of light in one go. As well as that, I have a revolver to hand. If anyone was stupid enough to play some sort of joke, I'll shoot. But how could anyone play a joke? I've locked the door and barricaded it with the table, and no one can get through the window because it's too narrow and too high up. At this point, the text ended. The rest of the exercise book had been torn out. So this room is haunted, muttered the professor. He scrutinised the pile of old books again and shortly after extracted some scraps of paper inscribed with the same handwriting. But they were torn into such small pieces that he could hardly decipher a single phrase. Who had ripped them up and why? On one of these scraps, Skolinski made out a word that instantly focused his attention. It was the word towel. Towel move. He couldn't find the continuation. What was the connection between this towel and the minutes? He looked around the room and immediately noticed a dirty grey and yellow fringed towel hanging on a peg in the corner. He wanted to go up to it, but at once he felt he had better not. Was it an illusion, or was the towel moving? He laid the papers on his knees, and for quite a while he tracked its steady spasm, like the spasm of an earthworm. So here was the activity he had sensed at once on entering the chamber. The something was in fact this towel an abhorrent spectacle. It looked as if the towel were trying to vomit but couldn't, and at the same time its motion was almost imperceptible. If not for the scraps of paper, he mightn't have noticed it. A shiver ran through the professor, if not for the actual wholehearted fear he felt. He'd have assumed he was falling victim to suggestion, but the feelings he was having instantly required him to take the situation extremely seriously. Should he leave? Yes, he'd have to, but he hesitated. Seized by reluctance to make any distinct movement, he sat quietly, trying to occupy as little space as possible, and thought. The lamp cast a rather dim light on the room. The pieces of furniture stood mute and still. A sort of paralysis gripped the professor. Had he imagined it, or was the towel moving more and more violently? By now, its motion couldn't be doubted, and it was an Evil motion, beyond any doubt, evil. Although that, I guess that idea of the supernatural is important here as well, because, I mean, we mentioned seances earlier, and of course the 1920s in the sort of post-World War I context saw a resurgence in, in this kind of investigation into and sort of belief in the supernatural, as I guess people sort of sought to, to recontact the... the the people, the people they'd lost at the time, and it's sort of it's something which, like I, I think think of it in in something like a um, Tom McCarthy C, for example, where he he writes a, a lot about that. But it's, I think it's it's rare to see it given such a sort of um, such prominence in, a, I guess, a contemporaneous novel at the time. It's almost like that's something which at the time it wasn't by most writers wasn't considered perhaps serious enough to be included in in their work. But Gombrovich, yeah, so sort of, I guess sees the um sees the pertinence of it in in his writing yeah i don't know i don't know what you'd say antonio because i think for me one of the key aspects of gombrovich's work is how much he hates the romantic um and i think it comes out of what you were talking about with you know the polish nationalism yes put everything on the 19th century and 19th century culture in poland was romantic culture Mm. i think that Lombrovich has this, therefore, sort of double attack on the idea of the Polish and the idea of the Romantic. So for me, I think this kind of, I'm sure some of the 
reason why he wants to depict the supernatural and the seance, as it were, and the gothic is it's one of the forms that the romantic took. And I think that um, a lot of the energy of his writing is to, I mean, more than satirize, but to sort of absolutely destroy people's romantic mm. pretensions in any form. So I think that uh, if he is therefore very alive to that kind of seance in like contemporary culture, I think it's because for him it would have been just the perfect kind of joke, almost <laughs> that kind of mm. that belief in. The supernatural, I think he would have seen as another form of the unreal, basically, of another form of the way in which people inhabit forms that they've inherited rather than that um, they've created themselves. Yes, exactly. And, it, of course, he is picking up on the things that were fashionable at the time. And all of that was huge in, the, in mm. that era. Yeah. On, do you think the, his his di- sort of dislike of the romantic is also connects to his his thoughts on the idea of um, sincerity as well, which we've alluded to a few times here? Like in, in one sense, kind of, uh, I think in Adam, in your introduction, you quote um, him saying, "In literature, sincerity leads nowhere." And perhaps one way of perhaps understanding the romantic is this is kind of this sort of surfeit, in a sense, of um, of a certain type of of sincerity. Um, is there yeah, could we maybe just dwell a little bit on that idea of a sort of like what 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 he meant by this this idea that is I mean literature sincerity leads nowhere and what sort of he is proposing as a kind of an alternative? Yeah, I mean, I think the sort of the deep philosophy in Gombrowicz is it's basically a kind of existential philosophy. It's a kind of pre, it's kind of a pre um, Sartre intuition, mm-hmm. which is this idea that everywhere humans go, they are essentially inhabited by the calcified forms of it that, have, that are not their own. And Gombrowicz, therefore, had this ruined aristocrat kind of grandeur where he just wanted to constantly define himself against any other form. That, that was, for him, the kind of perpetual quest. And I think... So the, the relationship between that and sincerity is very interesting because you'd have thought that therefore he would have seen sincerity as a value because mm-hmm. that would, and I think one of the things that's very likable about him is that his refusal of form is so absolute that it includes style as well. Um, there's this amazing lecture he gave in, in Buenos Aires in exile called Against Poets, uh, which is one of the texts by him I, I really love that he then reprinted in when he published his, his journal. And the basic argument of this is it's not, I mean, it's the poet becomes for him the symbol of the bad writer, essentially, um, who is so hung up on the idea of their own style and therefore, as it were, of of their voice, that they don't realize that that's just another form of kind of constriction. And that if you start trying to only speak as yourself, then you're just a repetition. Um, And so actually the true writer should always be trying to essentially include whatever it might define itself against. So it's a constant, it's a form of process, basically. So I guess that's where, I think that's what he means by sincerity leads nowhere, is that I think he thinks if all you try and do is speak as yourself, he would have hated (laughs) autofiction. He would have thought, um, (laughs) if you believe that you can speak as yourself, then you're already trapped. Um, And that the true writer somehow has to find this way of kind of almost kind of deconstructing the way they're writing as they're writing. Um, And so I think this is where some of the kind of wonderful energy of even a novel like The Possessed, you know, for all its kind of roots in money-making schemes comes from, is that it's it's, it's absolutely part of his general way of writing, which is to not care about inconsistency uh, about more than multiple tone, about plot lines that might disappear and then get contradicted later on. And as mm-hmm. by this thing we've alluded to, you know, even a character can change their name. Um, right. That the stability even of a character's name is not something that for him is kind of important. Let's let's just talk about that because um, uh, listeners might be curious. So this comes at about, well, maybe, uh, Antonio, you could explain it's about 20 pages in. Um, we get this footnote. After the second chapter or so, isn't it? Um, yeah, in the second chapter. Yes, I've kind of... I added to the, I've explained Mm. the footnote a little bit in this edition. So all along you've had this character called Marianne Valchak, 
mm-hmm. and you've got used to him being Valchuk, and suddenly <laughs> it says um, he's suddenly he's called Leshchuk in the middle of the page, and it says the footnote says as there has turned out to be a real tennis coach named Mr. Valchuk. And you have to remember that this was being serialised in a newspaper, mm. so the idea is that this person would have written in and said something. <laughs> With the author's permission, we're changing this name to Leshchuk. What a strange coincidence. <laughs> but um, there are various theories about where this came from. And one idea is that a friend of Gombrovich's was fed up with him boasting about how he'd make all this money out of this book, but he was still being very mean in the cafe where all these writers hung out, um, the Zemianska and Mazovietska Street, and um, and uh, to have a go at him, this this chap Yurkovsky had written this letter to the newspaper just to stir things up, <laughs> but it's it's also thought that Gombrovich may have had something, some hand in this little joke himself. Mm-hmm. And and he may just have been being provocative and true to his nature, as Adam explained earlier. I do also like the way that in a weird kind of way, because often with sort of serial books, when you discover that they were originally serialised, you suddenly understand, oh, that's why there's these kind of convoluted plot lines. That's why there's sometimes this bagginess because, you know, the, the author wants to keep the, the weekly or the monthly um, checks coming in. But it seems one thing that I enjoyed about the this, um, about The Possessed and sort of seeing that footnote is you could feel almost Gombrovich playing with that form in itself of kind of, okay, this is, you know, this is one way to write and why not have a bit of fun, you know, change the name and sort of, um, okay, yeah, there are some quite convoluted uh, digressions in the plot as well, but it feels, I don't know, because perhaps of that lack, that um, absence of sincerity or something, it it feels less uh, objectionable than perhaps um, when you feel that the writer, however great, is kind of churning out the chapters for the... <laughs> for the paycheck yeah i think what's so beautiful about it is i think with that footnote and the kind of even if there is a real reason behind it you know it, it, i have no idea if that's true it, it's too perfect it's it, it's so clearly also part of his aesthetic that mm-hmm. i kind of believe that he must have done this deliberately you know like well, I, i'm sure he did <laughs> <laughs> antonia how how important is it for you when you're translating a book to to feel that you know the, let's say, the the philosophy of the writer behind it. Maybe it differs from writer to writer, but like, you know, to, to understand his, for example, his attitudes of sincerity, <laughs> to understand his, yeah. the kind of the, how the book sits in the the context of the rest of his work. Uh, well, example. when I was a student, they made a film in Oxford. They made that film Heaven's Gate while I was a student. Mm. And um, I had a lot of friends who were being extras in it. And I, I, I went to the set and I found myself sitting there with John Hurt and having a chat with him. And they'd just done, um, he'd done the most fantastic performance as Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment in a serialised version on the telly. I said to him, gosh, that was so fantastic. I said, what did you read apart from the novel? And he said, I've never read the novel. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, what? I couldn't believe it at the time because there I was studying Russian literature and up. I've disappeared up my own backside with all this intellectual stuff and all these critical books. And I I find, he said, all I need is the script. That's what I'm working with. That's it. And it made me think. And I found as a translator over the years, quite often, that is what I have. It's what's there in front of me. And I mean, I have this terrible sense of being a fraud the whole time because I don't have qualifications in Polish or in Polish literature. And I probably do have gaps in what I might have read. And when I started translating this, my frightfully intellectual Polish professor friend, Magda Heydel, said, you've got to read the background literature. I had one of her (laughs) poor, wretched students scan all this stuff for me. So I, I did, I did, but I don't know how much it contributed. What did help me more, and this is something I do with whenever I can with any translation, I get the audio book. The Poles are very, very good at producing audio books. So in the sense, I'm going to the John Hurt equivalent person and having them read it to me. 
So I'm hearing an actor's interpretation. But very often that explains a great deal to me because I'm listening to the voice, I'm listening to the way they understand it as a Polish reader. Um, so, no, I, I'm. there'll be translators who disagree with me perhaps, but no, I don't think I need to know the whole background. Mm-hmm. I, I think also respond to what's on the page. Um, and I think the same should be true, Adam, of, like, of the reader. So if someone who's picking this up, you know, who hasn't read Gombrowicz for the first time, um, I think it's important that while he is a very philosophical novelist, one of the reasons I think why he's such a good one is because the the philosophy is all implied and it's all in these comic situations. Um, he's a very concrete novelist. Um, and so while it's true that he also was kind of alongside the novels, elaborating his own theories and um, for those, I think the journal is really the place where he kind of allowed himself to to write in that kind of abstract way. Uh, the novels are not at all abstract, and certainly you don't. So, like, I think that there's no need. I think in Britain, you know, certainly there is this worry about a novelist who has ideas, as it were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think one of the, re- you know, I think the truly great kind of novelists who do this, these century European novelists, you know, Gobrovich, Musil. Hermann Broch, mm. um, the thinking is all done within and through the characters. You know, it's not as if there are, you know, um, so it's not the same as if you somehow need to read a philosopher and therefore you need to read every single essay they've written or, um, you know, the joy of this is, 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 is the literary pleasure, as it were, you know, the way in which he plays with these, these concepts, but they're, they come out through the writing, not, um, they're not extraneous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to, um, before we finish, uh, it would just be interesting perhaps to hear a little bit about what you both think about Gombrowicz today. Um, so obviously, um, you know, this this book, the, the, the final complete version published in 1990, I think you said, Antonio, mm. in Polish. And so it's taken, what, 33 years to, uh, to come to English. Um, and so I'm curious to know, I guess... Firstly, perhaps from you, Antonio, what um, how Gombrowicz is seen in Poland today? Is he very much a kind of canonical writer, or is he still perhaps a little bit on on the outskirts? And Adam, perhaps from you, a little bit like more broadly in in sort of world literature, what you consider um, Gombrowicz's place and uh, and role is? Well, he's he's very important in Poland. He really mm. is canonical, and I think there's an awful lot of people who kind of aspire to write like him mm. um he he matters and he's still provocative i mean there are still backs he gets up and it's been interesting the last few years in poland they've had this very right-wing conservative right government and uh i've noticed within the promotion of literature how it could be said that perhaps they've favored nicely dead authors who can't have political views perhaps mm-hmm. a little bit and um i've noticed this tendency in the in the funding and so on um but also um perhaps an author like him would be harder for the that kind of cultural outlook to accept <laughs> because <laughs> you know he kicks everything over he's got a sort of Dali and Bunuel esque way of smashing everything up, um, and um, but of course he's massively important and still endlessly discussed. And I've had a great deal of of joy out of translating this book because there's an absolutely wonderful organisation, which is the Gombrowicz Museum at Vsola, where his family, these indigent gentry, had their manor house, and it's near the city of Radom. And I was actually invited to take part in an, in some events there around a literary prize that's given every year in his name. And then I was invited to Vance to a gathering of his translators to talk about his work and, and do readings publicly and so on. So he is hugely important and deeply respected and still a great deal happens around him mm-hmm. and in his name. We had great fun in Vance because I was there with the Serbian translator, Milica Markic, and we're both a bit subversive. So we were being shown around all sorts of Gombrowicz places in the city and being given a talk about this and this. So she and I were inventing our own Gombrowicz travelogue <laughs> and saying very loudly things like, from this balcony, uh, Gombrowicz liked to 
do owl hooting impressions at three in the morning. <laughs> we were saying all these things in the hope that next time we go to one of these conferences, someone will have added in all our lives. <laughs> we were thinking he might have enjoyed that kind of subversion. But, um, <laughs> so, um, but uh, I mean, Adam can say more about this, but he hasn't, he didn't really exist in English until mm-hmm. much later. I mean, he was big in French quite quickly but um i'm glad to say that beyond the existing english translations there are some new ones um in the offing so um watch this space but it's not Mm. just me oh wonderful and adam so outside of outside of poland um has he yeah did you think he has a profile that he deserves i mean in english certainly not um so i mean i think i must have first come across him in one of Kundera's essays, you know, 20, 25 years ago, mm-hmm. that would have been where I'd first sort of read about him. And Kundera was one of his huge admirers and, and champions. And um, and then I found it incredibly difficult to find any. So I, and it's interesting what Antonio says about France, because certainly I'm a lot of the first, for me, my my first reading of Gombrowicz was in French, because I couldn't mm-hmm. find it in English. Um, and... There is something quite fitting about that, I think, because he was an exile, basically, for most of his career. Um, and I think he was almost an ontological exile, you know, like what Antonia says, that he had no interest in the status quo or in kind of... Um, he, he was constantly, restlessly defining himself against everything. Um, and so, and I think that also goes for kind of... So where he is in world literature, where I think that in some places he's you know so i think certainly in france he's probably got mm. about the right status um and i think in other european countries but certainly in in english there is a real problem and i i think it's a mixture of the the translations yeah are often out of print um they're not always kind of brilliant i think even you know ferdy durker you know which is one of his best novels I have lots of problems with the English translation of that. Mm. Um, and um, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> um, no, I mean, like, kind of, you can, t- there's something, it, it clearly, it's what Antonio is saying is that, you know, the tone is clearly a huge part of Gombrowicz mm. kind of genius. Um, and it's very hard to translate sometimes. And so I think that he hasn't been um, as successfully translated as, say, Musil has been, or something. Mm-hmm. even Musil, I think, has probably not got the status he needs in, in English. So I think it really also comes out of just the way he writes is so playful and so formally inventive that he doesn't fit very easily into mm-hmm. people's ideas of even the 20th century modernist novel, let alone the kind of, if you've grown up on the 19th century realist novel. So I think, as I said, this is an easier book to translate. There are things about Polish that he uses that are very difficult to translate. For instance, he'll use diminutive forms yeah. to great effect, and we just don't have them. Mm-hmm. They just yeah. sound silly in English if you if you make a silly word up. Or uh, the English translations tend to. I suppose you could say over-translate because they're trying to explain mm. things, but you're so stuck. I mean, it's an unenviable task. Yeah. Oh, no, no, I'm not saying Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the book that I would love also as well as this that I think is incredibly readable and incredibly likable is his journal, which is gigantic. It's this huge book. And actually there is a, um excellent translation, um, I think published by Yale, and, it's Lillian uh, Valley, I think, isn't it? Yeah, yes, and, uh, I think so. Yeah, and that is just such a funny. It's you know, it's this. It's very moving because it's basically written for the emigre audience from Buenos mm-hmm. Aires for, for most of it, um, and it was his desperate attempt to basically keep himself going, kind of within a space called literature uh, when everything had collapsed, and. It's both incredibly likely egotistical. I mean, it has this very famous opening where it goes, Monday, me, Tuesday, me, Wednesday, me. But it's also a really quite extraordinary kind of operation of self-criticism, self-explanation. Um, and he quotes, there's a reader who writes into him saying, you know, I don't know why you're wasting your time with all of this kind of analysis. You should just be writing your novels. And then he says, yeah, but a, a writer who doesn't think in this way is not a true writer. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I think it's a kind of really an utterly amazing book um, and almost becomes its own little not it has its own kind of um, you could make an argument that that's a novel too it's this amazing voyage of the spirit so um, yeah so I think his play you know I think that he obviously has a huge status but at the same time I think that he's maybe there's an image of him as a, I think a very difficult writer um, mm-hmm. and I think that actually the you know the possessed is therefore I think a very wonderful place to start because it's so funny and so mm-hmm. silly in many ways um, that it shows that um, you know a hardcore East European modernist can um, actually make <laughs> it's a very useful life lesson it's true it's much more accessible which is you're absolutely right I hope people will want to explore more of him after reading this mm-hmm. yeah and indeed kudos to Fitzcarraldo obviously for uh, being one of the leading lights one of the only lights of, uh, of translation um in uh, in the United Kingdom at the moment so um that is all we've got time for um it is, of course, available, The Possessed, from uh, Shakespeare and Company, from our bricks and mortar store, from our online store, or from your local independent bookstore, wherever um, that may be. Um, Antonia, Adam, it has been such a pleasure to speak to you both today. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Not at all. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.